If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In what ways was the medieval era surprisingly modern? Dan Jones, whose latest book is Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, wrote an article on this subject for the October issue of BBC History magazine. And in today's podcast, he talks to our content director, Dave Musgrove, about the similarities and contrasts between the medieval experience and our lives today. If you enjoyed this interview, then you might be interested in a virtual medieval masterclass series that we're going to be running with Dan. It's four parts starting on Thursday, the 9th of September. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash masterclass for more info and to sign up. Dan, uh, your latest book is a new history of the Middle Ages, and you've written an article for BBC History magazine uh, that ties in with it about the sort of the surprisingly modern aspect to the Middle Ages. Um, let's jump in to start with and just talk about what that term means. The Middle Ages, the medieval period, um, stretches from what? What do we say? The start of the fifth century up until sixteenth century. 
big time periods, um, big area as well. What does it, what does it mean? When, when when do people actually start talking about medieval and Middle Ages with any uh, with any certainty? Well, I think the idea of the Middle Ages or a Middle Age sort of comes around in the 16th century, which is traditionally when we date the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and one of the first people, if not the first person to use the term the Middle Age uh, is John Fox, the great ecclesiastical historian of, uh, of the mid-16th century. And Fox talks about, he's talking about ecclesiastical history, but he says, you know, there was this, the primitive time, and that was the Roman Empire, basically, when the very, very first Christians were hiding in catacombs and trying to escape uh, perfidious Romans who wanted to crucify them, or worse. Uh, and then he said, that, and then there's our time, you know, the modern age, when we're all much more enlightened and reformed. And he said, and in between, there's this sort of middle age. Now, we call it the Middle Ages or the medieval period. The, the terms are identical. Um and it's it's a it's a strange time. I've spent my career writing about the Middle Ages, but it it does encompass this thousand eleven hundred years. If we go from the sack of Rome of four ten to the sack of Rome fifteen twenty seven, which is what the book Powers and Thrones does, it it does encompass a very very long time, a very large uh, geographical expanse, and a huge number of themes. Uh, which some of which are germane to the way we live our lives today and some of which are completely obsolete. So I think people have traditionally found it quite hard to get their heads around what the Middle Ages were, uh, what medieval really is all about. So what I tried to do in Powers and Thrones is put it all together and and give an accessible snapshot, uh, although quite a, a lengthy snapshot in terms of the size of the book, showing what the Middle Ages were. Um, and, and you can sort of cut up the medieval period into numerous chunks, can't you? Your early medieval, your high medieval, your late medieval. Do those sort of terms have much use, do you think? I think they do have use, actually. Um, I think if you look at the period between the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, 5th, 6th century AD, you see a series of competing entities uh, within the Mediterranean vacuum that the Western Roman Empire had left. So in Powers and Thrones, I've written about um, the barbarian tribes who come in and establish the very first versions of what we now know as the nations of Europe. You've got uh, a, a retrenching and um, and changing uh, Roman Empire in the east centred on Constantinople, which becomes much more Greek-speaking and Greek in character than, than Latin. You have the rise of Islam and the first uh, uh, Islamic caliphates in North Africa, the Near East, Southern Europe, Spain, Sicily, and so on. Uh, and then you get to Charlemagne's uh, sort of rebuilt Western, quote-unquote, Roman Empire. And I, th I think if in the early Middle Ages, that's quite a useful block to look at in its own right. It has a, a narrative shape if you're trying to understand uh, where the Middle Ages uh, came from, how they emerged, what the, the political units looked like. It is quite, it's still quite helpful to talk about the early Middle Ages. Likewise, around the first millennium, the year 1000, uh, it's, quite, it's quite helpful to talk about the, um, the high Middle Ages. There are certain themes and there are certain things going on which can be usefully blocked into two, two three, four centuries. So I think that terminology, it's, it's old fashioned, but it, it still serves a purpose. And what about the, the geographical extent? So your book, um, 
uh, it's kind of it's it's a lot about Europe, but uh, and you and you talk about in your intro that uh, it's not covering um, other areas of the world as much as you might do, in the, and other people, or maybe you might write that book down the track. But your book does um, uh, talk a lot about Asia and Africa and the influences that um, that come into Europe. When is is medieval uh, Middle Ages a useful term beyond the boundaries of of Europe? Yes and no. I mean that's a, such a, a a historian's answer I realize but look, traditionally the the middle ages medieval is a term that is is used in let's say western historiography and particularly uh european western european historiography. Some historians have studied trying to alter the terms and and make them a little more neutral, talking about a middle millennium. But really, we're talking about the same thing. Um, the challenge with writing a book about the Middle Ages, a, a sort of a, a broad ranging book about the Middle Ages, is to uh, is to acknowledge that this is a fairly Eurocentric term, and that there are there are current um, strains of thinking in academia, which says that Eurocentrism is by definition bad. I don't necessarily go along with that. I do think, however, that it's the 21st century and we need to cast our view a little wider when we when we try and write big histories. So the balance I, uh, when I was writing Powers and Thrones, I was always having to strike is let's not lose this story altogether. We're writing about the Middle Ages. This is something that essentially emerges from Eurasian history from and particularly from Western European history. However, let's try and broaden the lens somewhat. So in the book, I've, I've covered... Um, you know, the, the rise of the Mongols. You can't write a history of the Middle Ages without uh, talking about Genghis Khan and the rise of the Mongols. So the story uh, extends all the way to the eastern frontier of the Mongol Empire, which is Korea. You know, you, you're pushing that far east. Um, you can't write a history of the Middle Ages without talking about the rise of Islam, which is a northern African story as much as it is a Middle Eastern or a, a southern European story. You can't write a history of the, the end of the Middle Ages without talking about the voyages of discovery uh, to the Americas, without talking about Vasco da Gama and new routes through to um, the Indian Ocean. So I've tried to cast the net wide here, and it is, it's, but it's a, delicate, um, it's a delicate balance. I think there, there is a great book to be written one day which you've slightly alluded to, possibly not by me, although maybe by me, uh, which is a history of the Middle Ages with the perspective completely shifted, uh, completely flipped. So we're looking at this period in the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, and the and Western Europe becomes a sort of a sideshow. I mean, it's been it, it's this is something that I've noticed has been done in recent years by scholars uh, with the Second World War. I, I, I can't remember the book that I want to talk about but it uh, the name of it but it's a history if you read history of the second world war with Russia in the middle you get a, a radically radically different view of things like for example D-Day or uh, or Dunkirk than you would in traditional histories of the second world war and I think that there's possibly a, a, a way of doing the middle ages with that kind of perspective shift that would be a fun book I'm sure you'd be a fun book it. it'd, be, it'd be a very difficult book to write yeah it'd be a very difficult book to um to write in a way that was that had uh, scholarly um, chops, as well as making it accessible to a wide audience. You know, just having the num, having the cultural reference points available to uh, an English reading audience. You know, you, you have to meet your audience somewhere in the middle. That's what I've tried to do with Powers and Thrones. I, 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 but I, I do think there are other ways to look at the Middle Ages as well. 
Um, one more thing before we uh, stop talking about sort of the, the the more modern aspects to the Middle Ages um, is uh, another way that medieval is used as a term is in disparaging terms in sort of modern journalism and popular talk. Um, uh, what does that exercise you as a medieval historian? Does it infuriate you when someone says this is a medieval way of doing something? Not really. I just think it's lazy. Um, look, what are we talking about when people say uh, the Taliban are medieval? And people say uh, dropping litter is medieval. And people, you know, there's this whole range of things that the word medieval is brought out quite lazily to uh, to to describe when it's re- really just mean it's sort of generically bad and somewhat backward. Um, I, it doesn't particularly irk me as a historian because it's just you're not going to change it. And I'm old enough now not to get too mad about things I know I can't change. However, it is. Uh, lazy thinking, and it does suggest a lack of engagement with the Middle Ages. I think the problem is if you start saying, we should stop using medieval as a pejorative altogether because the Middle Ages were totally fine. Everything was all right. There was great art and great science and and great academia, and and actually it wasn't bad at all. Then you're, you're also, that's not true. That's not, you know, if you give me the choice, where would I like to live uh, in the, in in the southern England of the 21st century or southern England in the 14th century. It ain't no choice at all. Like, so you, so it, it is slightly a problem if you try and flip it completely and say we should, we should acknowledge the wonders of the Middle Ages. I, I, I just think that actually it, you can engage with the Middle Ages um, in a way that acknowledges uh, that it's interesting and not just totally terrible, dark and bad. So are you really trying to tell me you wouldn't have wanted to be alive in the uh, era of the Peasants' Revolt? That would have been great fun, wouldn't it? I can be very specific about this. I would like, uh, if you gave me the option of time travel with a definite return ticket, a definite return ticket, I will take you up on it. Otherwise, I am not going to any historical period that does not have basic painkillers and anaesthetic. That's my baseline. That's the one invention I'm not travelling you know, and, I'm, and when I say doesn't have, I mean freely available within like half a mile of my house. Okay, that's my rule. So don't come at me with your time machine, Dave Musgrove, <laughs> saying <laughs> I'm going to take you back to the Peasants' Revolt. I'm not going unless you, I take painkillers with me. Exactly. But then you can prove or disprove whether your book was any good. Uh, obviously, you've written about that's, it. But that sounds like jeopardy to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's even more trouble. <laughs> Right, so look, so um, so that sort of outlines a few uh, ways that uh, medieval and uh, Middle Ages are used as terms. Um, uh, in the feature you've written for the for BBC History magazine, you've kind of outlined a few similarities between what's happening today and what happened in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, so I thought we'd just go quickly go through them and just talk about uh, what, what you uh, what you ascribe. So the first one is climate change. Um, the, the the Middle Ages. I mean, as we've discussed, this is a very long time. This is a, over a thousand years, so things were clearly going to happen. What was happening in terms of climate change? Can you broadly give us a sense about uh, differing aspects to that? Well, I think one of the advantages of writing a book that covers a long period, you know, a thousand, eleven hundred years, is that you you can tap into the the great sort of ebbs and flows across not just uh, a couple of generations, but across you know. Dozens, scores of generations, and one of the things that I noticed early on when I started to plan out Powers and Thrones and work out what the shape of the book was going to be was that there was there were a few key moments in which shifts in the global or, or 
shifts in regional um, climate on on Earth formed the framing device, formed the background to uh, other periods of, of hu- human change. So if we take the the beginning of the Middle Ages, the Roman Empire, what have we seen uh, during the height of the Roman Republic, Roman Empire, a period in the Mediterranean at any, at any rate of um, climate conducive to good agriculture, warm uh, and wet, and uh, had provided the background conditions for the flourishing of human society around the Mediterranean, which the Roman Empire had taken advantage of by putting together trade networks to move uh, food and and, uh, people around this particular region. Now, when we look at the fall of the Roman Empire, so the the beginning of the Middle Ages, you can frame that in terms of climate change. You can say, well, two things happen. The first is the end of the Roman climate optimum, that is, that a natural movement in the cycle of the climate of the Mediterranean makes it less warm and less wet around the Mediterranean. And so you have things like the forests of the Atlas Mountains start to recede, and it just and it becomes um, less possible to grow in grow agricultural crops in marginal lands. You can't grow vines as far north as, as and so on. Uh, the other thing that happens is a a, a sharper and shorter and uh, more particular climate emergency, if you like in the far east which is a super drought on the uh on the asian steppe and uh, around northern china today uh which is of which is the worst drought possibly in 10,000 years and you can still see in tree ring data today now that the the effects of this drought are to move nomadic steppe tribes people who are called by others and possibly by themselves the hun does move them away from their traditional pastures and grazing lands to the east the hun move east the hun re- uh, displace the goths the goths uh, and another tribe called the alans and the goths are pressed towards the roman empire and eventually across its borders across the the, the river borders and the natural uh, edges of the roman empire create uh, destabilizing in the process the roman empire it happens across several generations but that's one contributory cause to the fall of the roman empire is it the only cause no is an important cause yes i so i what i've what i've tried to do in the book is take episodes like that and frame them through climate change there's a similar thing happens at the beginning of the 14th century you see the sudden the relatively sudden onset of the little ice age uh, a a sharp fall in global temperatures, which brings along with it, uh, coincidentally and possibly uh, causally, uh, heavy rainfall, flooding, famine, animal um, disease sweeping across Asia and Europe, the Black Death we know about, uh, and then spiralling out from those basic uh, catastrophes which affect people's means to survive, populist rebellion, uh, endemic war, um, revolt, rioting, uh, population crash. You know, th- this is the onset of the Little Ice Age, and it brings with it problems that are not only climate related. So those are sort of quite short, sharp um, things that that happen, which had um, dramatic consequences. I guess. Do you do you get a sense that people generally were talking about climate uh, and sort of having an understanding of it changing over time? Uh, and and thinking about that, no, and I th- I think that that's much more something that's symptomatic of our society today, and uh, our obsession with climate change is not only um, because there is climate change, and I'm by no means foolish enough to deny that there is man-made climate change. It seems self-evident. 
Um, but our, our ability in the 21st century to count things, to count things and measure things and process that data has made us incredibly conscious of uh, and prone to worrying about things that can be measured and counted. One of those things is climate change. Another, as we've seen at the moment, is um, is disease. If you can count, process, uh, analyze the data of the number of people who've got a particular respiratory disease day by day, almost um, hour by hour, according to the location, um, it, it gives. There's an observer effect at play, and there's. Um, there's a, an obsessional effect at play. Now, that not only uh, applies to the society that we live in and how we interact with each other in the present day, it also applies to the way that we look at history. And so one of the reasons that in Powers and Thrones I've uh, I've tried to bring in things like climate change and pandemic disease within a sort of uh, a, a tapestry tableau narrative of people doing fun and extraordinary and violent things is because they are important to us today. And I believe that history is a conversation between um, past and present. I guess if your life is uh, is much more dictated by agriculture and you're much closer to the land, much closer to the seasons, you would have a, a sort of a sense of when things were different, perhaps, or how whether your ancestors were working in a different way. I think you 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 allude to um, uh, an idea that um, Viking archaeologist Neil Price has, has talked about about sort of the uh, the the thimble winter, this uh, this uh, this Viking idea of something that happened in the past that that changed things. So sort of ideas of sort of folk memories of, of climate change and different ways that the weather operated in the past. Absolutely, and I think uh, the, the way that Neil Price in the Children of Ash and Elm deals with um, the feeding of. Um, ideas of a changing climate, possibly related to years without summer caused by volcanic eruptions, how that feeds into uh, elemental Viking folklore. I think I, I thought that was absolutely brilliant when I, I read uh, Neil Price's book. Um, I think, uh, and so, so you, you certainly see that operating um, in the Middle Ages. I think one of the other, but one of the other interesting things is if so, if you're living through the Great Famine, let's say, of the early 14th century. You know, 1315, 16, 17, 18, 19, through 1322, almost all of those years uh, failed harvests. Some of the years, no summer whatsoever. Uh, so forget uh, it being a bit mizzy in August, as it just has been in, in 2021. We're talking about literally no summer. There's no difference in summer and winter. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get away from the um, the, <laughs> the realisation that something was up. But of course, how do you process what you're seeing? Well, if it's the 14th century, not in terms of uh, of the way that we think about uh, climate change as something essentially scientific and measurable, but it seems to come through more in, um, it's viewed through a religious prism. And so it's viewed in terms of God smiting people and sending natural disasters as a, as a, uh, a corrective for or a punishment for sin. Okay, so we've got climate change there, and we've got different responses to it, um, perhaps to to the way that uh, modern people do. Um, you mentioned migration there, caused by uh, climate change, and that's uh, your sort of second aspect of of uh, medieval life that perhaps is comparable to, uh, to to modern concern. So mass migration. Sort of reading the early chapters of your book, um, it's basically just one long succession of people moving from one place to the other with with consequences, isn't it? Um, so uh, so very roughly speaking, you've kind of already done this super quickly, but who goes where um, and when in this during this period? Well, the period of great migrations is uh, at the end of the Roman Empire, having the the Huns and Goths having moved west, we start to see the movement of of 
big groups of uh, hitherto nomadic tribes into the West, into particularly into regions that had been part of the Western Roman Empire, and then a period of settling. So some of those tribes, their names are still familiar to us today because they've given their names to particular regions of Western Europe. The Burgundians, well, we know where Burgundy is today. The Lombards, well, Lombardy, Northern Italy, uh, we know where that is today. Uh, there are others whose names are familiar, but the territories they occupied may not be so familiar. Ostrogoths and Visigoths. Um, the Franks, I suppose, were the most successful of all the migrant peoples um, and are, are most knitted into uh, the cultural concept of the land that they they occupied, ruled, uh, which is France. So, so that that uh, from the fifth, sixth into the seventh century, I think that's the the, the biggest moment where migration, mass migration, is uh, is forging the the big story of the Middle Ages. But it's it's not the only, only one. You know, you could you could view some of the Mongol conquests as migration. You could view the uh, early Arab conquests as as forms of migration. You could certainly view the uh, Colum, uh, Christopher Columbus here, Voyages in the New World through that um, that lens. And what about sort of the concept of economic migration? Is that something that, that's worth talking about in this period? Um, what, what do you have in mind? Well, people, I mean, some of those those migrations you've talked about are more... Oh, yeah, no, forced, sorry. You know, people are being pushed from one place to the other by, by external condition, whereas someone who's looking to uh, to move to advance their, their, their economic position, I guess. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, uh, there's an interesting um, anecdote, I suppose, about this, and that comes from something you've mentioned very briefly in passing already, which is in the Peasants' Revolt um, of 1381. If we look at the... the po- if we see the Peasants' Revolt as what we now call a populist rebellion across England in the summer of 1381... Um, clearly, clear underlying tensions in London uh, explode during the weekend of violence uh, of the Peasants' Revolt when bands of rebels are going around London saying they're going to kill all the Flemings that they can find because there's, a, there's in London groups of Flemish merchants have been living within London and trading and there's a sort of a, a root xenophobic hatred of foreigners, which is allied to foreigner, the sense that foreigners have come over here and taken all our jobs. Now, that, and it's not only London. The Peasants' Revolt, you can certainly see this in, often in Constantinople, um, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, uh, as well as some of the cities of the uh, the Crusader states. I mean, you could view, in fact, that all of the Crusader states, um, Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, Principality of Antioch, uh, County of Edessa, you could view these as migrant states. Um, and there's a, a simmering hostility in the region to the fact that people from Western Europe, the Franks, uh, the French, have come over here and set up on our land. And so, uh, so yes, economic migration, I think, uh, is is a live issue throughout the Middle Ages. And you just sort of you, you uh, gave a, a good example of, of one modern concern about migration today, uh, the, the idea that people coming over somewhere and, and taking jobs. And that brings up the question of identity and who who is is you know should be in a, in a given place at any given time. What did what did people in the Middle Ages think about uh, their local identity, their national identity? Did they did such things exist in, in such a way that they were able to worry about migration in the same way that we do today? I think as we get towards the very end of the Middle Ages, there's uh, there is a sense of you know a, 
the beginnings of the sense of nationhood. You know, certainly if anyone who's familiar with um, with English medieval history will will have this idea that for, probably from the 14th century onwards, the uh, the sense of English nationhood is starting to build into something we could we could recognise today. Um, and along with that, yes, you do start to see people having a sense that uh, this is their land and not for others. I mean, I think there's a lot of that. Again, to go back to the Crusades, I think if if we look at the contest in Spain and Portugal for uh, for control between Christian powers and Islamic powers, um, that may not start as a religious struggle, but by the end of it, by the time you get to the 15th century, there is a real sense that uh, identity, that where you come from, who you are and what you believe uh, is now inextricably bound up with your right to remain, your right to live, your right to occupy uh, certain um, certain parcels of territory. And one other way of looking at migration, one other sort of uh, response today is to welcome it. So this is a good thing. We we need different people coming to, to a certain place to improve, uh, improve economic conditions, perhaps. Um, did anyone... Uh, actively sort of embrace and welcome migration in your period, do you think? Yes, but it's a bit, I suppose it depends on how wide you uh, cast your definition of migration. Um, there's an awful lot of slavery in the Middle Ages, which is, is a form of migration, not, not voluntary migration, uh, but it's something that's enthusiastically um, pursued by... M- a large number of uh, of peoples during the Middle Ages, and and not I'm not just talking about the 15th century and the beginnings of um, African slavery and and slaves being transported across the Atlantic. I'm talking all the way through the Middle Ages, from Roman times, you know, Viking slaving, Frankish slaving, um, slave moving people around is is by no means seen as um, as something that is de facto bad. Uh, in fact, moving them around is something that is that is welcomed in many cases because um, slavery is part of the medieval economy. It's something we don't talk about an awful lot, and that, um, that in fact we're get, uh, getting more and more nervous about talking about. But non uh, non racially defined slavery is an enormous part of the Middle Ages, and if you want to view that as as uh, as involuntary migration, um, then there's loads of people that welcome it. Yeah, I mean it's it's part of it's a it's a it's a crucial part of the medieval economy. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of them that I write about, and this is not um, not an uncontroversial topic among medieval historians, as the name of it suggests, is the Great Stirrup Controversy. Uh, the debate about the extent to which the, uh, the importation of the horse stirrup from the East to the West around the 10th century uh, leads to uh, a, a far greater importance of heavy cavalry in Western European armies and the birth of the knight and how far the birth of the knight leads to a social revolution within uh, quote unquote feudal Western Europe. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. 
Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So another point in your uh, in your list of uh, of sort of modernish preoccupations in the Middle Ages is uh, pandemics, pandemic disease. Obviously, we're all painfully aware of uh, what COVID has done um, in terms of um, uh, personal illness, worrying, disruptiveness into society as well. Um, you've identified a few obvious pandemics that happened in the Middle Ages. The most famous one, I guess, being the Black Death. Um, do you think uh, one of the things that's been interesting as we've gone through this pandemic is a lot of people have made comparisons to the Black Death uh, from mid 14th century um, and, and sort of said things about it. Is that useful to relate back to to, to that pandemic? It's it's useful in the sense that it's always um, either comforting or instructive uh, to think about history when you're going through something as a society. Um, COVID partly the nature of the illness itself, partly its interaction with the way we live today, and partly uh, our response um, has been a globally disrupting um, phenomenon on the scale that most of us alive have not seen in our lifetimes. So, of course, it's uh, it's inevitable that we're going to mine history for other examples of pandemics. Now, the comparison with the Black Death in epidemiological terms, in um, in terms of sheer mortality, is is kind of specious because the Black Death ripped through Eurasia and in Western Europe killed between forty and more likely nearer sixty percent of the people. It had a lethality that uh, is incomparable with COVID. On the other hand. It did the same thing in the 14th century that COVID has done in the 21st century, which is to illuminate what a society is like and what its preoccupations are. Now, if we say in the 21st century, what has COVID taught us about ourselves? We are hyper vigilant about 
personal hygiene. We are absolutely petrified of the idea of death. We uh, we move around, uh, move around an, a great deal, and we're great host species for respiratory diseases. We're obsessed with measuring things, uh, an obsession I've already alluded to, uh, and we're convinced that we can control absolutely anything uh, via technology, which is partially, if not wholly, true. Okay, so that's how it illuminates twenty first. That's how COVID illuminates twenty first century. Well, in the fourteenth century, the Black Death illuminates the fourteenth century in in a similar sort of way. It shows how mobile this century has become. What 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 relatively for the time fast and extensive links there are between the global east and global west. This is a disease that has its origins with the Mongols, comes via the northern Black Sea to Constantinople to Italy, rips its way through um, through Western Europe as far as Scotland and Ireland in, in medieval times in no time at all. It's not as fast moving as COVID because the transport isn't as fast moving, but the it, it like... It sends. Um, it's like it sends kind of radiate uh, radioactive dye into the networks around the world and shows you just how uh, sophisticated they've become. Similarly, in its responses, if you think about the flagellant movement, um, which is has its origins in Italy and is uh, uh, how would I describe the flagellants? It's it's a sort of religious uh, manic religious movement in which its adherents. Um, believe that by whipping themselves and scourging themselves in public, they will somehow draw down the mercy of God and uh, alleviate the suffering of mankind in general. Now, we have um, eyewitness accounts from the height of the Black Death in the 14th century, from the streets of London, in which you have parades of flagellants marching around the streets day after day, whipping themselves, lying down on the ground, being whipped until they're bloody, chanting religious songs. Everyone turns out in the streets to watch them in the hope that this is going to cure the Black Death. Now, this happens in the 21st century. You're saying, everyone, get inside. This is a super spreader event. What the hell are you doing? This is this is a disease that has a mnemonic component. There's a respiratory spread to the Black Death. Get inside. Of course, in, but in the 14th century, it doesn't, no one's thinking like that. But it does illuminate uh, the obsession in, certainly in Latin Christianity, at that point uh, with sin, with redemption, with penance, uh, with physical... Um, uh, scourging and uh, and sufferance of the physical body in the hope of of achieving uh, spiritual relief. So, yeah, the the answer is there is a point in comparing Black Death and COVID, but it's probably not the point that most people uh, hope to achieve when they make the comparison. And if we're trying to think about ways similar possible similarities between the medieval and modern mindset, I suppose one of the things that um covid has shown us today is uh, it kind of surprised us didn't it or certainly here in in western europe perhaps uh, it surprised us that this sort of thing could happen and mortality was right there in your face um maybe not so much in other parts of the world um i guess in the middle ages and particularly in the run-up to the black death it wasn't such a surprise you know that that pandemic's disease was was more of an everyday risk to, to life so were people kind of surprised about pandemics did they worry about things on a daily basis do you think well i think that's a very that's a that's in some ways quite a hard question to answer because you know you sort of alluded to it already i mean how much were people in the 21st century worried about pandemics well if you were i'd been to tokyo in 2019 and ridden around the subway with everyone wearing masks like huh what's going on and then you think well it wasn't that long ago since sars um if you if of course, I say this only with hindsight. If you'd looked at the sort of government wonks lists of global threats, it wasn't Islamic terrorism that was number one. Uh, it was 
a, a pandemic, a pandemic, a global pandemic. So there, there was a sense that we were quite worried about it. Um, in the same way that in yeah in the 14th century, for example, there had been outbreaks of plague here, there, and everywhere, and it was a known phenomenon. However, I think the surprise with the Black Death was the mutation that you've gone from something that spread by flea bites from rats, and we still don't really understand this, uh, quite how it mutated, but it's something happens to, that makes this disease not just spread from flea bites from rats, but to be spread on the breath, to be spread person to person. It's, it's human to human transmissible, and it's unbelievably virulent. Uh, and that seems to happen very fast. And it's it's shocking. People are shocked by it and they don't know how to deal with it. And Or, or rather, they do know how to do it. They've got a sort of sense. I mean, you just read Boccaccio and you see people do have a sense that uh, you just run away from the disease, run away from it and shut yourself off. I mean, that's the premise of the Decameron, right? It's a bunch of rich people, who, uh, rich kids who leave Florence and go and hang out up in the hills so they don't get the disease. I mean, they, that's the right thing to do. You know, you call medieval Ocado... And you you stay tight until either everyone's dead or everyone's not. Um, so, but how much of a surprise was it? Yeah, look, plague was a known thing, but not plague like this. That plague like this hadn't been known probably for 800 years since the Justinianic plague. And, th- and even that is not certain because historians think that it's possible that because of the paucity of evidence about the Justinianic plague in the 6th century, a lot of the data from the 14th century has been transposed back onto the way we've looked at the Justinianic plague. Um, it's very hard to know how bad the Justinianic plague actually was. It's it's not hard to know how bad the 14th century plague was. It may just it may have been um, unprecedented, completely unprecedented. Um. So we probably haven't got time to delve into the Justinianic plague right now, but you have to read the book for a bit more on that one. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned there sort of globalization as one sort of possible cause of, of spread of pandemic of, of the Black Death. That's another of your uh, of your points about uh, how how similar the medieval world possibly was to the modern world. Um, you're going to have to pick a time point to this question. When because I'm going to ask you how globalized was the Middle Ages, so you're going to have to say at some point was was it a global society? Yes, uh, not as globalized as our society is today by a long chalk. Didn't have the internet for a start, um, but uh, Valerie Hansen made this point. I thought very well in her recent book about the year 1000. You know, Valerie Hansen uh, pointed to the year 1000 and said that's a year that in theory. We have a, a totally globalized society because you have uh, Vikings forming a link between North America and Northern Europe. There's a, there's a, a fragile but but uh, but positive chain of potential transmission. So a coin, let's say, could in theory travel all the way around the the world, and the Vikings are the link across the Atlantic because the Vikings set up Vinland, uh, Alanso Meadows, probably. In um, in Nova Scotia, uh, there's there's intra um, tribal and there's intra regional trade within the Americas, and so it's possible for things to move up and down the the uh, North and South American continent. It's possible to bridge the Atlantic via the Vikings. The Vikings have trade links all the way to Constantinople. Constantinople uh, is is dialed into the Silk Roads. So yeah, something could travel from Korea to. 
Brazil. In theory, do we know if anything actually did? No, uh, but it's not impossible that, that could have happened. So, so I, th- I think that that's actually quite a neat way of thinking about things. I think th- probably the greatest text, um, the greatest text from the Middle Ages about globalization is the travels of Marco Polo. Uh, and even if only 10% of the travels of Marco Polo are actually true, and I happen to believe that a great deal more than 10% of the travels of Marco Polo are actually true, um, this is a fantastic example of uh, somebody from um, from Venice, from northern Italy, who spends 25 years in the service of the great Khan in the east and and comes back and writes down these vivid memories, not only of uh, of the, the the Mongol Khan's court, but also of all the places that the Mongols are trading with around the Indian Ocean, where the best place to get dried mango and watermelon sweets from is, where the best place to get horses from is, um, where the people are kind of savage and dangerous, where they're urbane and have sort of clean streets and uh, and flowing water. You know, it's an unbelievably brilliant and vivid. Uh, read that just emphasizes the interchange between these uh, these two parts of the world. And it's it's not the only one. If you think about there are other fantastic accounts from the later Middle Ages of people traveling from, say, the papal court. A lot of a lot of friars travel from the papal court as ambassadors going to the Mongol Khan's court, uh, hoping to convert the Mongols to Christianity, hoping to involve them in the Crusades. Um, and some of them keep diaries. So uh, Giovanni uh, Dapian del Carpine keeps this wonderful diary of his his tortuous travel to the land of the Khans and back. Um, And I think that those sources, when I was writing Powers and Thrones, were incredibly helpful at um, showing how people could move. It wasn't wasn't easy, but how they could move between the great regions of the world, how these places were uh, more connected in the Middle Ages than perhaps we might think. So it's it's kind of theoretical in a way isn't it that, yes and stuff could move and archaeologically people you know stuff is found you know um cat jarman's recent book on uh, river kings uh, outlines how a, a dirham from uh, asia could have made its way to reptum in in uh, in uh, eastern england and, and and could have been there and you know that's that's an interesting um take but i suppose trying to understand the medieval mindset a bit uh, and and compare it to the modern mindset do can can you make any observations on how a medieval person in, say, the year 1000 would have understood the world around them? Would they have understood more about the world than their their locality, their village, their town? Would they have considered themselves to be in any way a global citizen, or is that just a completely anachronistic and stupid thing to say, which I am prone to do? Uh, no, no, I think you're playing devil's advocate very, very nicely there, though. Uh, I think that... Look... No, I think on balance, the the likelihood of any person you hoiked off the street in the 13th century considering themselves a global citizen is much lower than if you I walked out of uh, the offices here in Hammersmith in London today and hoiked somebody off uh, off the street in West London in the year 2021. For lots of obvious reasons, we're a much more mobile uh, and joined up society today than we were in the Middle Ages, and it would be uh, fatuous to pretend otherwise. Um, that being said, it's not impossible. And if you do take uh, somebody like Giovanni de Pian del Carpine, who had travelled, uh, who travelled from the papal court in uh, southern France all the way to the Mongol court in China and back, then you do have examples of individuals who have made that journey and who would ha- certainly have the right to consider themselves global citizens. Uh, but I just think that the chances of it are 
are much lower. However, I I think that we can we can caricature the Middle Ages as a time when absolutely nobody had any concept of anything other than a, a kind of flat earth and their own little village and a, a hobbit-like shire that they inhabited and, and nothing beyond. Um, the truth lies probably a little bit closer to that to that than to uh, friars traveling thousands of miles uh, and taking years to go back and forth to the, the Mongol court. But... Um, there, there was a wider spectrum of understanding of the world in the Middle Ages than, than often we might assume. Right, last one of our of our preoccupations, our modern preoccupations. Right now, we uh, we're, we're very concerned and interested in IT and uh, technological developments, and uh, it's very much changed the changed the face of the world, certainly in our generation and uh, and probably uh, the generation before that. Um, do you see the uh, Middle Ages as a time of similar technical innovation? There are times in the Middle Ages of uh, of rapid technological innovation, and some of these have uh, have profound social consequences. One of them that I write about, and this is not um, not an uncontroversial topic among medieval historians, as the name of it suggests, is the Great Stirrup Controversy. Uh, the debate about the extent to which the uh, the importation of the horse stirrup from the east to the west around the tenth century. Uh, leads to uh, a, a far greater importance of heavy cavalry in Western European armies and the birth of the knight and how far the birth of the knight leads to a social revolution within uh, quote-unquote feudal Western Europe. We haven't got time to go into the Great Stirrup Controversy in, in the detail it deserves. Uh, I've preceded it in Powers and Thrones for readers who are interested. Um, nevertheless, it's a good illustration of how a, an apparently small and simple to us today technological advance can have big social cultural consequences. I think another extremely interesting example of this comes right at the end of the Middle Ages and in ma many ways is responsible for the end of the Middle Ages. And that's the uh, the invention, the popularization of movable print type, famously used by Johannes Gutenberg in his Bible. Okay, So the middle of the 15th century, the printing press comes along and suddenly the creation of books, of pamphlets, of newspapers, as we'd call them now, uh, of and particularly of indulgences to be sold by the church, production of these becomes uh, easier by an order of magnitude than it ever has been before because now you can print stuff and you don't, it doesn't ought to have to be copied out longhand. And I think that the, the social, cultural, political effects of the printing press um, lead to a comparable... Uh, shift in the way that people interact with one another to the modern prevalence of smartphones which can run social media. And what I mean by that is that once you can print stuff uh, en masse and distribute it for the times relatively quickly, uh, and it's much more open and possible for all, quote unquote, ordinary by which I mean literate people to publish than it ever has been before. What do you see? Well, you see people like Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the rest of them coming along uh, 
having incredibly sort of, for the times, mad and um, radical ideas, writing them down obsessively and circulating them all the time, and and then beginning to compete with one another, uh, partly consciously and partly subconsciously, to be the most extreme and wacky and out there, and stirring up in the process the forces of reaction and conservatism and traditionalism, who go just as far in their direction uh, with doubling down on refusing to change absolutely anything whatsoever. And these forces, you have a culture war. We call it the Reformation, but the, it's a. We, you call it the Reformation when you're talking about the 60, uh, late 15th, 16th century. Today we call it the culture war, and it's about a whole bunch of different stuff. But ultimately, it's about identity and belief and power expressed through publishing. Um, so if you like, and you're going to have to rely on my analysis of the culture wars as well as my analysis of the Reformation here, I'm afraid. But if you like, the printing press is not that dissimilar to the iPhone and social media. I mean, these two things have comparably massive effects on uh, on Western society, um, I think. Not that often we get an answer that takes us from uh, the stirrup controversy through to the printing press. So that's you know it's a topic we don't talk about enough in terms of uh, the great stirrup controversy. I know a man who's an expert on medieval war horses, so maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll get him on to uh, to. Um, he'll tell, tell you everything I just said was wrong, yeah. probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it just into just thinking about sort of technology and, and technological innovation, there's kind of a sense I think perhaps that Western Europe, what we would describe as Western Europe now was a bit of a backwater of technological innovation for a large part of this period, notwithstanding printing press that you, you just talked about. Is that true? It, was technological innovation really going on uh, further to the east in, in, in more Islamic territories for, for much of the time, for instance? This is funny, this, isn't it? I mean, it's become almost like a knee-jerk response whenever we talk about the Middle Ages to apologise for, for the West and just and to say, oh my God, yeah, we're just such a terrible cultural backwater. What you say is absolutely true. Look, innovation happened in the East. Think about gunpowder, paper, movable type printing, off stirrups, to, to return to your new favourite topic. This happens in the East and it moves to the West. So this is where innovation happens. The Islamic world is incredibly good at transmitting, pre- preserving and transmitting knowledge in libraries. So how does how do the works of Aristotle become, become revived in the West? Because they've been preserved, uh, translated into Arabic in Islamic libraries. And then there's a great translation movement once the Reconquista captures some of those libraries in places like Cordoba. What's the West good at? Okay, even if it is a, a sort of terrible, dirty backwater and completely uncivilized, and uh, you know, Marco Polo does kind of allude to the great sophistication of Eastern society. So, you know, maybe there's something in that. But what is the West good at? The West is good at adapt, at te- stealing, if you like, borrowing, if you don't, um, technologies from other parts of the world, literature that's been preserved in other languages, bringing it in and folding it into uh, the existing sort of skein of, uh, of Western society and finding interesting new uses for it. You know, the stirrup may well have been invented in China, Korea, or the Far East. However, it's in Western Europe that this humble, this humble little, that's a very Boris Johnson way to put it, this humble little piece of art, it's, it's in Western Europe that this is transformed into uh, eventually into the phenomenon of Frankish cavalry, which go about the 
whole of the Western world and the Middle East in the in the crusading era, destroying everything before them. The stirrup becomes the Frankish cavalry. The stirrup becomes William Marshall in the West. And we fold it into this literary, it finds its literary and cultural outlets. And the same thing is true with the, the printing press. The printing press comes along in the West, and what happens? We have the, the Reformation. We have this sort of uh, epoch-shifting cultural, religious, social transformation. So um, I think there's more to it than just saying, oh, the ter- terrible, dreary West, completely unsophisticated and, you know, in comparison to other cultures. That's that's just as silly as the old Victorian imperialist view of the the, the sort of arc of progress being something... Um, intrinsic to uh, the English-speaking Western world. Right. Um, we better wrap up on on this one. So just we've, we've outlined there a, a whole bunch of things which uh, were in some ways similar between what happened in the Middle Ages and what happened today and, and uh, similar or different responses to. Now you've written your, uh, your magisterial overview of uh, the whole period. If I asked you to pick one thing that was a big difference, one substantive weirdness between then and now what would you what would you say one weird thing one disconnect maybe one thing that really we oh, would, we would find surprising i see um listeners of yours in the southern united states might disagree with me uh and for that i apologize however uh you have to price in um religious belief a lot higher in the middle ages than you do in the 21st century. You just we're, we're just a much more secular society. We're not an unspiritual society. In the morning, Dave, I get up and I, uh, I ride my Peloton bike, and there is a spiritualism to the exercise classes there. It is not a religious spiritualism. It's a spiritualism informed by California hippie mentality, uh, and it's a spiritualism of a completely different degree. It, but it is there nonetheless. Uh, however, we are we are much kind of cooler on organized religion, uh, you know, particularly in in, uh, in the West. Uh, there, and there are differences I, I, I accept. But in overall social terms, we're much kind of cooler on organized religion now than we are, than we were uh, in the Middle Ages. And to return in a circular fashion to an earlier point, or to a point that we sort of began with, one of the reasons that medieval is applied to, let's say, the Taliban, is because when you see a uh, an organisation that is both political and religious and that has, has fused its political, cultural, uh, social and religious uh, ideologies um, unapologetically, it does sort of smack of a time when the Latin Roman Christian church occupied a much uh, more vigorous, active uh, and influential place in Western society, and that is that. That I think is is the big difference between us and them. Well, thank you very much. We've only really uh, touched the surface of what you talk about in your book, uh, Powers and Thrones: New History of the Middle Ages, which is on sale right now and is no doubt at the top of the bestseller list. Um, uh, you cover the whole gamut of of, of the story from, uh, as I said, from about. Well, you, you actually go back into the Roman period and then uh, and then forward uh, to, to to the end of the uh, of the period in the Reformation. So a long period of time and a long area you talk about, and seven hundred odd pages of great reading. So if anyone wants to get a, a handle on what happened in the Middle Ages, then uh, this is the one to read. So Dan, thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
That was Dan Jones. His book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, is on sale now, published yesterday by Head of Zeus. As I mentioned, Dan is also delivering a medieval masterclass series for us at History Extra. That's going to be over four consecutive Thursdays, starting on the 9th of September. For more information and to sign up, just go to historyextra.com forward slash masterclass. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Saul David will be speaking about the special boat service in the Second World War.